in five, four, three, two, one. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Moon Tea Podcast. Today we have a repeat guest, John Chung. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> so, oh. so uh, I asked I asked John and and JT before if what was okay to talk about, and they said it's okay to talk about us. So I wanna I wanna just. Uh, have the introduction in there. So the last time that uh, John was on the podcast was the first time that Hugh and I had met him. And uh, I think it was after like a first date or a second date with Jackie. And now they're dating. So (laughs) So, uh, yeah, Moon Tea podcast brings people together. Um, We're honored to be to be a small, small part of it. But uh, yeah, John, welcome. Welcome uh, to the podcast and thanks for coming back on. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. I mean, you know, after the first time around, I was unsure. I'm like, oh, God, is this going to be one of those things where I tell on a, a bad uh, another date? But here we are, you know, the me and Jackie's meet you could be that could be the Moon Tea podcast. So, so exciting to be back. Exciting to uh, talk to you guys again. Uh, John and I have actually met in person, which is pretty exciting, a couple of times. So it's, uh, yeah, looking forward to jumping in it. Yeah, Hugh, you're, uh, you're, the, you're the lagging person here. We, we're, we're just hanging out all the time. But uh, in, a, in a few weeks or so, hopefully, fingers crossed, Hugh makes it out you know, here. You know, off camera, I told Hugh that he better be here. <laughs> for the MTP for the MTP picnic, or we're gonna be furious at him. <laughs> I was I was a little nervous because I asked you directly. I said, "Are you planning to come?" And then he wrote this long diatribe about about how he's a bad boy and he doesn't want to let us down. He never confirmed whether or not he was planning to come. So I. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, but you fingers crossed you make it out here. I think you would have a great time. The flight tickets are booked. The Moon Tea podcast invites have been sent out. It's going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. yeah, but John, this is this is your episode. Um, oh, man. Do you want to catch people up on on who you are again? what you're up to in life, your dreams and aspirations. And if you want to go on a 30 minute spiel about stoicism, then like be our guest. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, we'll be a little less on that one. So for, for those that didn't listen to the first episode, my name is John Chung. I am a certified public accountant, um, amateur stoic philosopher, friend of a uh, friend of the podcast and um, what's going on in the past you know, I think it was like five months ago since I talked to you guys. So uh, for starters, I have a new job, which is quite exciting. I um, Congrats. Yeah, I transitioned out of uh, private equity and I currently work for a larger uh, European conglomerate, which is uh, pretty exciting, pretty interesting, something very different. Um, as mentioned before, I am happily in a relationship now, which is awesome to say the least. It's... Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely something that's 
that's great. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, curious to see. I mean, I, I see John semi regularly, so I, I know what he's been up to. But what's Hugh? What have you been up to? Uh, what have I been up to? Let's see. I am learning more about how to not be a bad manager and trying to keep people i had that we had the first team member leave the team in the past two weeks and that was like that was a that was a first for for me and it was interesting it was like it was a very mature and kind gentleman in his 30s and it was an interesting way he he only joined for about a month but he decided and said hey you know i need to I've been, he was a director of like 14 designers before, and then he wanted to restart and go and be a product designer again. So he said, yeah, please join our team and, and restart. And so he was there for a month, but I guess in that month, it just clicked for him that he didn't want to be a designer or in the design world anymore. And so he kind of said, it's not, well, you know, we got to trust what he said. We asked him multiple times that he said, you know, I don't feel like I, this is for me right now. I need to go and head on my own track, doing nothing that's work related for a while and go and try to find what it is that I need as my next step for my wife and I. And I thought that was really respectable and commendable, but also must be very difficult. Also, is it true? I don't know. Maybe in a month I'll have another job. However, it was a nice way to exit. And secondly, I do hope this gentleman really is going to find what it is he's looking for after I guess a midlife thirties, mid thirties type of tangent. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's rare that people really tell you the truth when they um, when they leave a position. I find it even more commendable when someone steps into a role and then quickly realizes it, quickly realizes that it's not for them, and then they just decide to cut their cut their losses. I think that's better than you know, staying the course and dragging yourself down, probably dragging the team down. Um, even though it's frowned upon, it was frowned upon in the past, but I think that now in, in you know, 2022, anything kind of goes. Um, I mean, it's a good thing that we're in really uh, employees market as opposed, to, as opposed to an employer's market where really the employees kind of have the most control for the first time, at least in my lifetime. I don't know what you guys think about that, but at least in my industry, people that are my peers, my even former colleagues, they're essentially writing the terms for what they want for the new companies that they go to, which I think is a good thing. You know, it, it, it encourages competition amongst uh, the firms. It really helps create that kind of work-life balance that people so often seek. And I think that, do I think it's gonna continue? No, as we enter into a unfortunate recession, but I think that while it lasts, I think it's good, so. I love that. Yeah, I'm kind of curious for you as, I don't know much about the CPA world or the finance world in that sense. So it's like, how does, how? how do most people love what they do as a leading question, right? Or is it, how do people find the meaning in the work? Is it, is there a lot of turnover or not? Or what do you think? Yeah, so 
my background started in one of the big four accounting firms, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and they have their business model is essentially, you know, based on turnover because turnover is quite high because you kind of have to cut your teeth. You have to start at the bottom. You have to really grind. You have to work a lot of hours. You're not, you don't get overtime and you're learning, but also you're working like a lot in your early twenties when you can do it. But it's kind of like those that stay past five years will go on to be partners, which means they have equity in the firm essentially. And those that don't leave and they go into what's called private um, because the big four are called public accounting because they audit publicly traded firms uh, or yeah, publicly traded firms. Um, so to answer- Wait, you, you, can be a, you can be a partner after five years? No, 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 no. I'm saying like, usually the track, I, I miss, usually the track is like, if you stay past the five years, you're on, mm -hmm. you're usually on the path to mm -hmm. make partner. Usually it kind of depends. I mean, I've seen usually like 10 years there that you, that you see people get admitted to the partnership, but then there's other things like, do you have a business case? Um, how, how technically proficient are you? Are you good with clients? Are you good at bringing in clients? Um, are you good at managing your team? Because I've seen it all sorts of ways where you have people who are technically brilliant, but they're terrible managers. And you have people who are brilliant managers, but they're not really technically proficient. So it, it, usually the answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, but to answer the question, people really don't, I would say, I would say love their job when it comes to, especially the tax accounting world, because we're so based on deadlines. And it's kind of, one good thing is that everything is essentially the same. You know when you're going to be busy always. But it's also sucks because you know when you're going to be busy always. And so, I mean, I, it was hard for me to find fulfillment for a while until I had to jump around a couple of times to a couple of places before I realized like what it was that really, I won't say made me happy, but made me content. And that's really having the chance to work in a firm that's growing and a firm that really, I would say prioritizes work-life balance because you're never going to get that, but at least gives the illusion that there is some sort of work-life balance. You know, my previous firm, I, as I mentioned, I was in private equity and there really wasn't an off switch ever. And it was a lot of, um, you were expected, it would be when we weren't really busy and there's, I still get emails at like eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night asking me to do things. And I would say like, well, so when's the, the off button? And sometimes I would you know, get a little annoyed, like go, go hang out with your kids. Like, what are you doing? Like, it's, it's not worth it. You know, like it could wait till tomorrow. Um, that's something that I've picked up in the past few years is that if it could really, a lot of things can wait till tomorrow and that no one ever goes on their deathbed and says, you know what, I wish I, I worked a, another hour. I wish I had another Zoom meeting or I wish I, you know, get another tax return, you know? Um, but I'm, I'm happy to have found that. Um, took a while for sure. Yeah, I mean, you're also a, 
I mean, it's definitely the case that if you're at the big four, just starting out, like you grind your teeth and then it opens doors and then you kind of like take your chips to the next table and then you do it a few more times. You get a, a raise, hopefully a raise every time and you have more responsibilities. You have more control over the work that you do. And yeah, and then and then you get to like, kind of carve your path and like figure out what's interesting to you so yeah seems like seems like you're on a good path yeah it's um one thing about uh, one thing i do like about the job is that you're always there's always room to learn you know the internal revenue code is so voluminous and so com inherently complex that there's always something that you can learn there's always something that you you're not going to know like no one knows the internal revenue code inside and out the irs doesn't know the internal revenue code inside and out there's always room for interpretation there's a lot of gray area um and i got you could say fortunately or unfortunately because it's created a lot more work but we've had major changes in the code multiple times since i started in my career and people who started pre 2017 never had major 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 overhaul to the code because it was the tax form the tax i don't remember the original act it was the tax act of 1986 signed in by the reagan administration and that was that was the tax code for 30 years and then you know donald trump was elected and he decided to have a pretty major overhaul of the code and then a couple of years later Joe Biden is elected, and then he decides that he wants a major overhaul of the code. And granted, there wasn't the major overhaul that um, that Joe Biden wanted, but it's pretty, it's still pretty substantial. I mean, the, I'm sure you saw in the news that they passed a, um, the Senate passed, um, I guess, a, a tax, essentially a tax and spend bill, where they have some more revenue raisers without raising taxes on the. Uh, on those making less than $400,000 a year to make corporations pay their fair share, as they say. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot wrong with it, but that's a discussion for a different day. Um, like today? Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, for, like not to go like super, super into it, but one thing that I think is like almost criminal is I'm sure you two have heard about the concept of carried interest in the news or maybe even understand the concept of carried interest but for the listeners on a very high level what carried interest is is that when it's it, it's usually for hedge funds and private equity so when a fund manager is managing a fund and they have what's called a hurdle rate so let's say the hurdle rate is 10 percent. that's how much you have to return anything over that is is essentially a capital gain. And that's that's called carried interest because it goes to the fund manager. So the fund manager gets a gigantic waterfall. And what's interesting about that is that that payment, which is referred to as, it could be referred to as promote GP carry, carry carried interest, all interchangeable. What happens is, is that, that if it's held for more than three years, that's taxed at capital gains rates, when realistically it should be taxed at ordinary rates because in your ordinary course of doing your job, you are managing money. So 
instead of the 37% top rate that you're getting hit at, you're getting hit at 20% if you hold it for three years, which I think is criminal. I think that's number one, conceptually incorrect. Number two, really like, that's really showing that, wow, it's kind of rigged in favor of uh, the upper class. And you see even people in, on Wall Street saying that this is criminal, like this is a joke. There's no, there's no conceptually good reason why it exists other than the fact that private equity has a strong lobbying arm and has the ability to lobby. I mean, the provision actually was supposed to go into the latest bill that was passed, but at the last second, uh, the private equity industry strong-armed uh, your senator, Hugh, uh, Kristen Cinema, everyone's favorite senator from Arizona, and she demanded that that does any provision, any change to carried interest get dropped, and it got dropped, which I think is a little ridiculous. You know, you can't claim to be fighting for the lower class and the middle class while still upholding that tax rate or that tax, um, that's actual. Um, granted, they were saying that you, the, the change would only raise like $14 billion, but it's on principle at that point. Like there's no reason for that. Um, yeah, that's a, a very high level, high level description of carrot interest and, you know, the um, implications of it. Um, definitely a hot topic. It's been a hot topic for like 30 years. They've been trying to get rid of it for like 30 years and no one could figure it out. Wait, really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. They've been trying for... Every 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 Democratic administration has been trying to get rid of it. Oh, interesting. Because it's inherently unfair. Mm-hmm. And so, just to clarify, you said there's the capital gains interest rate, which is like say thirty-seven percent or something like that after a certain amount or a th- certain threshold, maybe, and then the ordinary income. But for a hedge fund. A hedge fund is a conglomerate that is investing on behalf of many individuals that put money in there. So I'm just curious of what's the definitions or how does one, how should one think about it to fall into one or the other? So to quickly backtrack, um, the top top individual rate is like 37%. The top capital gains rate is 20%. What happens is- Flip that. (laughs) Yeah. When a fund- when there's a fund, usually let's say a hedge fund, let's say let's take a hedge fund for example, or a private equity fund, but let's say hedge fund continue use hedge fund. So when the fund is started, they have a they have a duty to return money to their investors, which are usually high net worth individuals, institutional investors like pension funds, other funds, banks. So what happens is that when the fund is started, they'll set something called a hurdle rate. The hurdle rate is what they want the return to be. So like if the total, once the total return gets to 10%, any amount after that gets paid to, it, it depends also on the partnership agreement, but it gets paid out to the fund manager because the, the fund manager is a partner in the fund as well. And that is treated as a capital gain. If you hold it, if you hold it for more than, hold and sell it for more than three years. Right, or if you sell it after three years. So, otherwise, you if it was if it's held between one to three, then it's you know it's ordinary thirty-seven percent. But after that, it's capital. 
which means you get the preferential rate. Um, that's why it's unfair because it, it just doesn't make conceptual sense. You know, in the ordinary course of your job, you're managing money, you're returning money for your investors. You should not get, you sh it should not be different than if I did my job every day for five years and my, like, it, it shouldn't be different from that. Um, mm. So that's essentially at a high level what it, what it entails. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it's a very hot topic. I mean, there there are like dozens of things that it's very hard to argue that it is fair in the tax code. Um, you could argue that you could argue that the system of taxation is not fair anyway because it's it used to be a progressive well it's still a progressive taxation system which means as you go up the income brackets you pay more a fair the most fair way is a flat tax but that's impossible to implement because there's no way that um, there's no way that they would ever pass it because too many people have interest against it. Or uh, like in the European Union where they have a, a consumption tax or if you ever heard the VAT, the value add tax. So it's a, you get taxed on what you consume, which theoretically is fair because people who, are, who make more money consume more. So that would be more fair than, you know, than what we have now and another hot topic that's been going around is the um it's been falling around for years where people want to have a wealth tax but it's so impossible to implement like i, I know bernie sanders throws around quite a bit where you know you'll see maybe once a month in the news he proposes an act like the tax billionaires act and he wants any any billionaire who made a over X amount of profit during the pandemic to pay like 90% of tax or something ridiculous like that. But it, it, it's also, it also doesn't make conceptual sense because, you know, if you're, if you're instituting a, a wealth tax, how do you, how do you have someone value their assets? Because most of, most of people's wealth is not tied up in cash. You know, Elon Musk can't go, can't run over a chase and withdraw I don't know, a hundred billion dollars to the bank, like a like a like a the Joker from Batman, you know. Most of his most of these guys' wealth is tied up in their stock, at least CEOs. So it's not liquid. So you would have to sell your stock, which would have, in effect crash the economy. So there's no way. It's it's just not it's not uh, really efficient. And also who is who's the official about who's the official appraiser of all these assets, right? Because if I'm a rich guy, I'll just pick someone who's favorable to me as opposed, you think the government's gonna pick someone fair? Like it's, it's, this is why it's impossible to have a wealth tax. And the compliance burden would be outrageous. There's no way. I agree. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. she's looking pensively over there. It's amazing. Yeah, no, it's it's just yeah. I I don't I haven't learned the most detailed amount on the VAT or the value added tax and consumption taxes. I'd be kind of curious to hear a bit more of like how would those work? Is just a possible idea? It's like an an idea of what an alternative could be compared to the progressive tax. 
Um, but before we ask that, I'm curious. So you're saying a flat rate would be more fair than a progressive tax rate if you are going up in the income brackets, right? And so people even under the poverty line should be taxed at a flat rate to the same as other people, do you think? Theoretically, yes. That's, that's the most fair, right? I mean, I still, I would be more in favor of a, of a VAT just because people who have more money in, inherently consume more than people who are below the poverty line. But the reason that you see in the news that all these rich people, like the billionaires, don't pay, you know, the same amount, the same rate as, you know, your ordinary Joe Schmo like me, is because they're most of their income isn't from a salary. They don't get like, yeah, the, they don't get like fifty billion dollars a year, or they don't they won't get paid out, you know, a hundred million dollars a year in salary. That's a lot of it is a lot of their income is capital gains, number one, if they sell, or dividends. Dividends is, and dividends gets hit gets treated at a very preferential rate too. So oh, I thought it was I thought it was counted as income. Well dividends. Dividends? Yeah, no, it is, but it's but your the dividends are taxed at a lower rate than ordinary income, right? Oh. So and also interest also interest income. Um so it's, that's why I think that like a flat tax inherently would be fairer to then, you know, what we have now. Um, but that's, that's just me. Um, I'm not really sure what a VAT would look like. It'd be something, I, I, I would assume it's something like, be something like a sales tax. Yeah, it would just, it would just be like a federal sales tax. Yeah, a federal sales tax, which some states, States that don't have a state income tax have sales tax. So the biggest ones that come to mind are Florida and Nevada, but they have no, and Washington state have no state income tax, but they have sales tax. That's otherwise like, how are they going to fund the government? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. question for you, John, um, given our kind of insane budget deficit, um, given that at this rate, it doesn't look like we're gonna be we're gonna be uh, fiscally responsible anytime soon. Um, if you are the king of America and you wanted to you wanted to make things right in a way where where it like people who could pay would like we're paying a higher percent like yeah like what would that look like to you well the problem is very uh, very hard question by the way so like yeah uh, the problem is when you have a budget deficit is that you really have to raise taxes like everyone likes to go on the campaign trail and say well you know i'm not going to raise it no every your taxes have to get raised or you just have to get the economy going you know you can't have a recession and then decide that you're changing the definition of the word recession just because you don't want to look bad. Like it's a recession is a recession. You know, it's everybody knows it's two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, which we had. But then the White House decided that it was not a recession. Like we're in a recession, and it's going to be rough for a while. I mean, I'm not really sure with causing the run 
truth be told, I'm really not sure what's causing this ridiculous runaway inflation. I don't think the stimulus is what did it. I, I really couldn't tell you what it is. I'm not an economist, but you know, something has to be done and taxes do have to be raised. But the problem is it becomes a slippery slope because if you raise taxes now, they're not going to decrease them. They're going to just say, oh, well, you know, we're going to have to raise them again. No, it's very rare unless you have a Republican administration that taxes get lowered across the board, which, you know, it, it becomes a slippery slope. So to, to answer your question, I'm not really sure of it. Uh, you're going to have to raise taxes, but I don't, uh, I'm not really sure like what the solution would be. You know, I, we just happen to be off, the, off that, uh, that gravy train where credit was cheap because credit is not cheap anymore. Everything becomes more expensive than everyone for everyone. I mean, when they're thinking of raising the interest rates again, like a hundred basis points, that's absurd. Just the tame, I mean, to tame inflation, but still it's absurd. Everything becomes inherently more expensive then. So I don't really know what to do other than, you know, clearly the administration, yeah, it might not be fair, but the administration, in my opinion, doesn't know what they're doing. And I, I don't know, I don't know what the solution is. Um, I just know that it's hurting a lot of people and it's gonna hurt some more. Dude, do you have any solutions? Nope. Do not. I, I'm too uh, too new to learning this whole subject, so I'm kind of like listening as a student, and I just want to learn more from John. <laughs> you're the one that knows way more about finances than I do, John. To be honest, both well, John, John Kim, and then you've got John Chung, but John Chung knows more than all of us. But then you've got John too. So yeah, I, I don't actually know enough. Don't sell yourself short. Yeah, but, but, but um, I, I mean, what would uh, what would other John do? What, what what's your what's your if I were king solution? I think I would start by like if you look at so so you either have to raise taxes or lower spending. So I would look at spending, and. If you look proportionally at what we spend things on, a big chunk of it goes towards war and kind of like international efforts. And I think I would start with making that more transparent because mm -hmm. yeah, somehow somehow we can like, our legislators will like vote for vote for things and then you know that it happens, but then when it comes to war, somehow, it's not really something that people are aware of. And so I suspect that if we were fiscally responsible, we would we would have a smaller presence abroad. Um, I know I know there are a lot of people who are like, I love America, USA, USA. Like they like that uh, the US like has this has this like red, white, and blue power <laughs> around around the world. Um, but I, I suspect that in general, people would rather pay less taxes than to like continue to do that. So that would be a starting point. The next thing no. I would do. Yeah. 
no, that's fair. Sorry, continue. Um, the next thing I would do would be to um, try to get. I think I think we really fucked up with our freeways. Um, just like, who was it? Uh, Nixon in like the 1960s. Well, basically, what what happened was that um, I think it was the 1960s. One of the presidents signed a law or made this thing where a state would just have to pay 10% of the cost for a freeway, and then the federal government would pay 90%. And so it was kind of it was kind of cool because if you have cars, your state would just pay for ten percent of it, and then bam, and then and then all these all these cities just had like freeways plowed in between them, um, and yeah, that was like really destructive. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of the neighborhoods that were that were uh, destroyed were like low-income communities, um, like Black families, like Black neighborhoods, um, minorities. Um, there was actually one neighborhood in LA called Sugar Hill that was like, it was kind of like the Harlem of Los Angeles. And it was, it was one of the first like wealthy Black neighborhoods. But yeah, now, now it's like the 710 freeway or something in LA like there's nothing there anymore um so yeah I think we really fucked up with with uh freeways especially being like like destroying parts of cities and then just like just like building it I think in between cities like sure let's let's have a freeway whatever but I would um yeah the next thing I would do is I would like try to incentivize people like living close to cities and like living in like walkable neighborhoods um, and like doing less driving because it turns out when you live in a far off suburb, it's actually quite expensive to, to have pipes and electricity and all of these services in your like suburban neighborhood. Um, and then the the tax revenue that that you get from that suburban neighborhood is like very little compared to what you would get in like a denser area. So so yeah, I would I would just like try to get people to be closer together. I would try to get people to drive less. Um, but this is also a, a selfish uh, a selfish thing because I've been really into like walkability and urban planning recently. Um, but I suspect that'll like those two things alone will do like have a little bit of a dent. Um, and then and then my third selfish thing would be I would I would print trillions of dollars of US dollars and then I would use it to buy Bitcoin so that the US government would have a treasury like like a Bitcoin treasury. And uh, yeah, and then I suspect that that would be the, the right like long-term move so um so yeah that is my spiel about how i would i don't think i don't think it's fixable <laughs> like i don't think the the budget is is fixable but it would uh, address it a little bit and at least make it so that 
we're less hopeless about the future. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was kind of thinking about it today, and I'm kind of, yeah, like I don't know how long. I don't know, like whether it's our lifetimes or like our children's lifetimes, but like I feel like at some point America is just kind of. It's it's just gonna be like this has been superpower. It's gonna it's gonna be like a like it'll be it'll be really good at a few things, but then there will also be a lot of other things where where it's like extremely not likable. Like like there are a lot, there are so many rural communities where like people don't know how to read. It's just like basic things like that. And yeah, I suspect we will not be a superpower in like, I don't know, let's say 50 years. Hopefully I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Um, yeah, I don't think that, I think that, I think that America will probably become sort of like the UK where they ran shit for how many centuries and then they did it, right? And then I don't I don't know who the next superpower will be. I'm very hopeful it's not China, because you don't want a totalitarian state being the superpower of the world. A totalitarian state that imprisons own people where you don't have rights, where the god your god is the state. You know, and I don't think that's good either. But it's trending that way. And it's even it's even shown because you know Nancy. If this was 25 years ago and Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, you know, no one would really bat an eye. Now it's like an international incident because she went to Taiwan, and China is you know showing more aggression. They want to take the South. They want to claim the South China Sea as their own. They want to go for the Taiwan Strait. And the question becomes, if you if they go for Taiwan which for multiple reasons is not feasible, mostly because Taiwan is essentially a natural moat. But let's say they go for the, I guess the, beach, the landing, like a beach landing. What do you do? You know, what is, is America willing to fight World War III over Taiwan? But then the problem becomes, where does it stop? Similar to Ukraine, right? I know many people, especially on the right, have their, have their issues with Ukraine, they claim it's a corrupt country, which it is. But the problem is, is that if you allow Vladimir Putin to just take Ukraine and install a puppet regime, is this like, um, like 1937 when they allowed Hitler to take the Sudetenland and then he just kept going for territory? So on the flip side, it's like, well, Vladimir Putin is a lunatic, we all know that, he's a horrible person. But the buildup of NATO also, from his perspective, is concerning as well. You have, you have all, these, all these nation states or the, all these nations that are joining together. And like Sweden and Finland, where I think they put an application to join NATO. That's concerning too, if I'm him. And you, don't, you never want to back someone who has nothing to lose into a corner because they have nothing to lose. But... If Ukraine falls, then what's next? Does he start? Go, does he go for Moldova? Does he go for Latvia? Does he try to go for Lithuania? It's a slippery slope. I, I don't really. I, I'm not going to pretend to know what the answer is to it, but it's definitely 
concerning in the, the geopolitical world. And it's kind of like that fine line of, well, what role does America have in kind of mediating everyone else's bullshit? Because we don't want to be the world's police and the people don't want us to be the world's police. But when there's an issue, the first person they call is America. And that it can't be like that too. I mean, Donald Trump was wrong about many, many things. But what he wasn't wrong about was that why are the NATO nations not contributing as much of their GDP to defense? Why are we paying for it? And it's, it's interesting because most, of, most Republicans historically have been war hawks, and he really wasn't a war hawk. He was an isolationist. And he, he had the America first principle, which is a very nationalist and very um, populist point of view, which to an extent, some things I agree with, some things I don't, because you can't just box yourself in. We're, we're too global of uh, we're too global at this point to box ourselves in. But it also becomes like how much of it is our issue, right? And why are we getting involved in other people, so many other countries' affairs, especially countries that hate us? Why are we? That, that was a big thing for him. It's like why are we going into countries that hate us? Why are we helping? And you know when you see what. New York and Los Angeles look like in terms of the homeless problem. And then you see how many trillions of dollars were spent in Afghanistan. It, it, it's almost, it's enraging, you know? There's, there's so many people who are suffering who are our own people, but then we went to go fight a war that no one won overseas. They knocked the Taliban out in 2001 and the Taliban is back. It, it, it really was, there, it was pointless. It was the second Vietnam. What is the stoic approach to all of this? Stoic, I mean, the stoic approach is to really be measured. I mean, the problem is that, yeah, Marcus Aurelius is the most famous stoic, but Marcus Aurelius was also an emperor. Marcus Aurelius was also, he had an empire. He was a conqueror. They fought war. They took country, so to speak. You know, so it, it was a different time then, but I would think that you have to take a measured approach to this and you like you can't just go willy-nilly spending all this money and pretend it doesn't exist. I think, I think that's a major, major, major issue with progressivism is that they, like my biggest issue with progressivism is that it's not really practical, it's not pragmatic. It's all what I wish could happen. Well, I wish we could eradicate homelessness too, but it's not gonna happen. You know, I wish we could have clean energy for everything and have that Green New Deal, but it can't be something where if you were to complicate the collective wealth of every billionaire in the United States, that it wouldn't pay for one year of the Green New Deal. That's, that's a big problem I have with progressivism is that it's not logical. It's all just, if you remember when you were a kid and they're like, all right, if you if you could wave a magic wand and it was a utopia, what would you do? That's what I think that progressivism is. And I think that it's a problem. You know, you have to be practical. You're not, this is not a monarchy. You can't just rule by fiat. You can't, you're not a king. You have to compromise. There is an opposition party and there always will be an opposition party. So. You're amazing, John. I love this. Uh, yeah. This is 
Yeah, not, not, not only am I a, a stoic and tax expert, apparently I'm an expert in world events too. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a complicated affair, intercultural dynamics and cross-cultural dynamics at a global scale. I don't know how you, I, I, it's, it blows my mind how, and this is something it's again, like a three-year-old in this whole subject of how everyone has their own kind of like, unless they're pegged off of the US dollar, they have their own centralized banks and then how each bank kind of is able to trade on the foreign exchange market and then how do and if everybody's able to print money and such how does it even have backing and and value when no one's on the actual certain types of you know not on the gold scale anymore or whatnot and so it's it's interesting i don't know enough yeah it no it is interesting and it's uh it's, I think it's even wilder, at least in this circumstance, that the euro is at parity, which was never supposed to happen. That's crazy. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds because as we, we're going to become more globalized as the future, as we go into the future. And is it going to be one thing where we're just one global nation? I don't think so. There's too many different cultures and too many different people. It's not going to work. That's why no one ever truly conquered the world. But yeah. Yeah, and then all the politics of it, like how does how does all the foreign exchange of it all happen? But then all this, yeah, everything you're touching on is extremely difficult to navigate. And what is that balance for? It's focusing on oneself or focusing externally and in a sense, puppeteering in a way if you are of that caliber or of that uh position blah blah i've uh my only input is that there were times when i would read about whatever is happening somewhere else in the u.s or somewhere else in the world and then i would get mad or i would get frustrated and and then i i reached a point where i realized that there were some things that were in my control and some things that were less so in my control. So I, I, uh, when I realized that I kind of like backed off and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to care about things like that are like in my local community where I can, there's, there's more, there's more opportunities to like make an impact. Um, because, uh, like, especially when Trump first got elected, I was like very angry all the time because every single day was some other atrocious thing. And then, yeah, there was, there was a point where I was just like, he's going to do his thing and I have to, I have to live my life. So for anyone listening, um, there's probably something horrible going on in the world and there are probably a lot of people that are angry about it, but I encourage you to, to focus on what's in your power and, if there's nothing you can do about it, then, and it's, and it's like ruining your day, then, uh, then, uh, consider reading about something else. Yeah. I think that's a big problem. What happened within the past couple of years, especially the Trump era is that people, he likes to, he likes to say it's Trump derangement syndrome and people, people's brains were broken, but people's brains were broken. I mean, Granted, he didn't help because he was he was like uh, putting gasoline on a fire, but 
to be fair, every single thing, uh, by no means am I defending, I fucking hate him, but every single thing that he really did, people lost their shit over. Even things that they would, they might ordinarily agree with. You know, when he signed that bill into law to really, I guess, lower, or I, guess, I don't know if it was getting rid of mandatory minimums or really lowering the prison, prison population for like marijuana offenders, people still weren't happy. And it's like, listen, you have to, when people do things that objectively are good, you have to say, okay, like that's, you know, it's good. And also I think that too many people from the outset, and I don't know when this started, it's where they didn't want, I don't know when it happened where you just didn't want the president to succeed. It's like, if the president succeeds, don't I succeed? Like, I, I don't get it, right? I, I don't know what, I don't know when it started. It might have started in the Obama era, might have been even before that, but I've never seen it like this, where it's like either side you want on, you know, you just hate the other side with so much with so much vitriol, or you only love America when your party's in power. It can't be like that. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's something that I've always kind of wondered like how, you know, in the UK system, they have a parliamentary system where there's multiple parties, not just a binary party of red or blue. Also, it seems kind of a curious question of when certain people fall into one camp or identify as another camp, when people are so on a spectrum, how is it, how do people really fall into one or the other at certain times when, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's, these days it does seem a bit, as I like the word of vitriol, lots of, there's a bit of a lack of communication in a lot of ways, or um, I think it's a, it's a bit worrisome to see that there's no, there's sometimes no communication or seeing the other side, or when you realize the other side's actually probably thinking some very similar things and, how do you find that balance and actually realign what your value sets are, not your identifying sets of one adjective? Yeah, I mean, to, to tell a quick story, I mean, when I was younger, when I was in high school, I, cause I, I grew up in a very, I guess, conservative household and I was very conservative when I was younger. And I don't know why. And then I guess it's because I didn't, I didn't have or didn't want to see other points of view. And then once I saw other points of view, there were so much things that I, so many things I disagreed with, with on the, on the conservative side, at least. Like for one, like the whole religion thing is something I really, the Bible belt, the Bible thumbers, I vehemently, vehemently disagree with them. Or some other social issues, I really, I vehemently disagree with them. Um, and I don't think that I would have, become that way if I didn't see opposing viewpoints, you know? And I think it's the key. Um, you see even now in the universities where people are, like they won't let a, a speaker that they don't agree with onto the campus or they're like physically blocking the person from entering the campus. I'm like, that, that's shit they did in Mao Zedong's China, right? You know, like this, this, this is not a banana republic. You have to, I think you should be forced to see opposing points of view because number one, it helps your argument more. And number two, it helps you understand that, yeah, you could be different from people, 
politically, but you could still get along with them. I mean, I have friends that where we're on total opposite sides of the spectrum, but we still get along. There's things that people even that I share similar views with, we, there's issues that we clash on, but we still get along because at the end of the day, we're all people. I just, it's not one of those, why can't we get along things? That's like, why can't we get along, right? Definitely. Well said. Yeah. John. And, um, I don't see it getting any better. John, do you have any words of wisdom, any parting thoughts for our seven or eight listeners and hopefully Jackie? <laughs> First of all, I'm so mad. I'm so mad because she still hasn't listened to my podcast episode. And <laughs> No, actually, all right. So when she was on, so when she was on a, when she was on a flight back, she's like, "Yeah, I was, I was trying to listen to your podcast episode, and then I fell asleep." But I said, "Wow, I'm really just that boring, aren't I?" Um, but parting words. So I guess my parting words would just be that, you know, sometimes you have to just stop and appreciate life you know we're all going too fast we're all we all go a million miles an hour and if you don't pause and enjoy the moment and if you're too caught up in the past or too worried about the future you're not going to enjoy what's going on now and now is something that you'll never have again and um, yeah to quote one of my favorite films even though the actor is canceled which is hitch Life is not the amount of breaths you take, it's the moments that take your breath away, take your breath away. And oh, I love that. Yeah. And you know, you really should value the moment. You should value the people that you're with. When you're in when you're in someone's company, you should really value their company. When you're out with your buddy, you should value their company because you never know when's the last time that you're all gonna hang out. That's my um, my diatribe on that. Um, but yeah, really, thanks for having me on again. It's always a uh, always a blast. You're amazing, man. I'm so glad you came on. <laughs> I'm trying to beat Elliot's record. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, you beat Jackie JT from uh, even the second time. She hasn't been on the second time yet either. This is great. You can now hold that over her. <laughs> when she comes, when we, if we talk to her later, I'll, uh, I'll tell her that. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks, guys. Much appreciated, as always. Totally. No, uh, seriously, thank you, man, for coming on. Mr. John Chung, CPA, stoic philosopher, kind, open-minded, well-spoken, and generous human being. Thanks, man. And with that, I think that's the end of another Moon Tea episode, a podcast, again, where we talk about craft, community, building meaningful careers. This is a place where hopefully we can keep on finding cool new guests to come on and to talk about anything and everything. We have pretty cool intake forms that are now open to the public that hopefully Anyone listening, if you're interested, just email us at moontypodcast at gmail.com and we'll have you on. And if you want to talk about anything that you're interested in, we'd love to have you on and learn from you. So 
with that, best wishes, and until next time, see ya. Peace. Peace.